0: Good morning. Welcome again to Horizon West Church team. Thank you for leading us. Uh, That's awesome, man. So many things to celebrate this morning. Uh, We know there are some hard things going on in uh, different families, different uh, groups of people, but man, celebrating as a church. uh, Two things in particular, uh, both of them in our Next Generation ministry right now at the 11 o'clock hour, uh, we've got several children who are beginning this week their dive class. This is four weeks of learning about salvation and faith and baptism. And several of those children have already made a response of faith and, uh, and responded to Jesus. So they're learning about what it means to be baptized, why that's important to us as followers of Jesus. So we're celebrating that. We're also celebrating 25 Horizon West Church students who are participating in this uh, surge retreat over at our John Young campus. And uh, Edwin and Heather, our student leaders texted me this morning, they said three of those students, Horizon West students, are being baptized this morning at our John Young campus. So we're celebrating what God is doing there. We have great leaders, great volunteers in our Next Generation Ministries. We're thankful for what God is doing um, there. Having said that, I am a little concerned about some division that has started to creep up uh, within the church. I want to address that quickly. Uh, Some of you are saying, go Chiefs. And some of you are saying, go Eagles. And some of you, when I say there's a football game tonight, you're thinking of a whole different sport, right? So different divisions that are happening. And, and so this week, that was all a setup to say, we're back in a house divided in our First Corinthians series. So feel free to kind of thumb over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or pull it up uh, in your, your Bible or Bible app. Before we get there, I want to let you know that as I've been studying and preparing uh, the messages out of 1 Corinthians, there's been kind of a theme that has emerged. Um, and what I see in the heart of Paul is the heart of a, of a spiritual dad who's trying to help his children walk in the way that they should go. Uh, so, so when Paul sounds irritated with the Corinthians, or when he sounds frustrated with them, or when he's hitting them hard on an issue, it not because he's cantankerous or fed up with them. But like the heart of a a loving father, he's trying to correct them to walk in the way that they should go. This is the undercurrent. Paul's trying to encourage the Corinthian believers to become a thriving spiritual community or a spiritual family. United in worship of Jesus and in fellowship with one another. He's not implementing a a new set of, you know, rules and regulations, a code of conduct on them. He's saying there is a way to flourish and thrive in the kingdom of God. And I want you to, to walk in that way. We might say that Paul was for Corinth in the same way that we say we as a church strive to be for Horizon West. And the reason is very simple. It's because Jesus is for the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he disrupts the existing power structures of the day, he's not doing it to deconstruct their belief system, but to reconstruct the better that God intended for them. So for instance, when Jesus says, you've heard it was said, but I tell you something different, he's saying there is a better way to live in the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who are persecuted, he's saying there's a better way to thrive in God's kingdom than the way you naturally think. What Jesus was doing, and what Paul is striving to do with the Corinthians, is to turn their perspectives right side up again. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, at the very beginning, Uh, gives us a metaphor in which the world is flying upside down, so to speak. When you're flying upside down, what happens is that everything looks the way that it shouldn't look. And so when things are coming at us right side up, they appear to us to be upside down. This is what the world sees in our gospel. They go, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit within what we know to be true of the world. And we think, or the world thinks, it's flying right side up. And the reality is, it's flying upside down. It's lost its bearings. It's lost its way. This right side upping is very much needed in our own day as well. Let me give you some examples. We take actors, athletes, and politicians, and we call them celebrities, which literally means celebrated ones. We're flying upside down. We ask questions like, what is that person worth? And what we mean is, and everybody understands, how much money do they have? Worth means monetary wealth. We're flying upside down. Or here's another one. We take young people with skin deep intellect and experience who are self-obsessed and attention hungry and we call them influencers. We're flying upside down. We need this same word of rebuke that Paul is going to bring to the Corinthians we need in our day as well. For the ones Paul's addressing, their version of flying upside down is this argument that has been generated where they're arguing, hey, is Apollos better or is Paul better or is Peter better? And in this argument among the Corinthians, I hear undertones of what the disciples themselves did when they came to Jesus. said, Jesus, which one of us is the greatest? Do you remember how Jesus answered that question? He turned their perspective back right side up with these words whoever would be great among you must be your what? Servant. See, by the values of the world, servants are at the bottom, right? And kings and and, and magistrates are at the top. And Jesus says, You're you're flying upside down. (laughs) You've completely misunderstood what matters and what is valued in the kingdom of God the servants are great in God's kingdom another way to say this is that the Corinthian believers were arguing over the question who is better Peter Apollos you know Paul who is better and Paul says let me submit to you a different question to ask not who is better but what is better What are the values that God cares about? What are the values that can help me to thrive in his kingdom? And Paul will seek to answer that question in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 26. He starts by observing something unique about the Corinthians themselves. Look at verse 26 with me. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul's like, look, Corinthians, examine yourselves. God wasn't privileged to get you on his team. Like you weren't exactly standing out in your own cultures, right? Now what Paul is not saying is that none of the Corinthian believers were people of status or wealth or influence. He's also not saying that having those things is bad. What Paul is saying instead is when you substitute those values of the world like wealth and influence and status for the values of God's kingdom, you're flying upside down. And the Corinthians evidence that that in fact was true of them. Paul's point here is to say that the privileges of this world mean nothing in the kingdom of God. You are no better or worse because of how much money is in your bank account. In fact, in many ways, the world's value system is in direct conflict with the values of God's kingdom. And Paul's saying, if you navigate by those tools, what's going to happen is your your plane, so to speak, is going to begin to fly upside down and you won't even realize it. So in place of these values in which the Corinthians were operating, Paul's going to submit to them three new values, better values, kingdom values, for them to live by. In their life, First Corinthians one, verse twenty-seven. I'm going to read a significant portion here because I want to go all the way through uh, chapter two. And so, follow along with me, beginning at verse twenty-seven. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, in order to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but rather in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Verse 5 or 6, rather, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the the spirit of that person, which is in him? So this is God's word for us today and embedded in it we're going to see these three values that Paul submits to the Corinthian believers to say stop operating in, king, in earthly values and start operating in these values of God's kingdom. The first one is this, a better wisdom. In the gospel there is a better wisdom. Now you might know that for the Greeks wisdom was kind of the supreme virtue, right? Right? Uh, shortly before the times of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, a couple of guys rose to power. You might have heard of them. Uh, influential men with names like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. And, and Greek wisdom and Greek ideology had so permeated the culture that, that it defined those who were wise, those who could process and, and, and incorporate the wisdom of the Greek philosophers into their lives. And the way primarily that that was demonstrated was by a person's ability to articulate wise sayings. You remember Aesop's fables. Uh, So in other words, the more eloquent a person was, the more the Greek culture would go, wow, you are so wise and you are so profound. And it's the reason that Paul says, I did not come with eloquence or lofty speech. He's saying, because if I had done that, you would have put me in the camp of the philosophers and gone, man, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and Paul. And he's going, no, what I bring to you is something different. It's the wisdom of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not something that relies on eloquence or powerful speech. The substance of the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In fact, Paul seems to indicate that those lofty speeches were not just not helping the gospel, they were actually detracting from its power. Look again at verses 4 and 5, he said, My speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom. It's a really interesting phrase he uses. He says, They were rather in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The wisdom of men, then as now, is demonstrated by what one says, but the wisdom of God is demonstrated by what one does. It's why Paul will say later in the letter to the Corinthians, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. Jesus didn't gain a following. Jesus didn't bring salvation into the world because he was just so gifted at communicating. He did it because in Jesus, the power of God resided in human form. And Paul says, Corinthians, come back to the wisdom of God. Come back to this better wisdom. The wisdom of God is not found in carefully crafted theological statements, nor in classroom debates. It is found rather in the lives of people who have humbled themselves before the Lord and in whom the Spirit of God moves in power. That is what the wisdom of God looks like. But Paul says, but don't think that this is truly foolishness, right? He, he uses that word to kind of to, to play with the concept of the upside down. But he says, but listen, it's not really foolishness. It is actually wisdom. But he says in verse 6, but it's a wisdom for the mature. It's for those who have received the revelation of God, who understand the gospel of Jesus. He even calls that gospel two things. He said it, it was secret and hidden. You're like, what in the world do you mean, Paul? Well, Paul had been a student of the Hebrew Scriptures. He had looked right in the face of God's revelation given to us in the Old Testament. And he missed it. And, and now that Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus and Jesus had revealed to him the truth of the gospel, Paul goes, man, this was hidden from me. This was a secret to me. It was, it was hiding in plain sight, but Paul missed it because he was looking too high." And the gospel came to those who were low. And so Paul says, whether you're a Jew or a Greek or a Roman, you're all tempted in the same ways. You're all looking at a human way of thinking and you've missed the gospel. The gospel that came for all. So he says, these things God revealed to us through his spirit. The way to spiritual wisdom. It's by divine revelation. You can't get enough degrees to have it. You can't hang enough plaques on your wall to possess it. You can't even live long enough to guarantee it. The wisdom of God comes through the revelation of Jesus in the heart of a person. It's a work of God. But it shows up in very tangible ways. Let me ask the question, what would it look like for the spiritual wisdom of God to play itself out in your daily life? Well, it should look a lot like what James described in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. The wisdom from above, or the wisdom from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And in other words, what Paul is saying is the, the real hallmark of the wisdom of God is an attribute that's simply called peace. People who are wise are people who strive to make peace with others. Now again, this is a remarkable contrast from the way the Greeks thought because in in Greek thought, if you could beat your opponent in the debate forum then you win as the person who's wise. And Paul's going, no, no, no. The wisdom of God works differently than that. The wisdom of God is willing to be defeated. The wisdom of God is willing to be made low, even to be humble and to be sacrificial. That's the way Jesus brought salvation to the world and it is our model. For us, we're tempted in today's world to think that that wisdom means I take the the high ground in a a Facebook conversation perhaps and and if I can use my Uh, really complex understanding of history and ethics and moral values, I can just like grind that person into the ground and people will even like and love my comments because I'm so wise. And I think the word of God would say, if you were truly wise, you would just stop typing. (laughs) This was the lesson I had to learn personally in difficult ways. I'm like, but it's so obvious. I can, and the wisdom of God is pure, peaceable, gentle, sincere, but it does not work In this world, it's not the way that they navigate or the system they use to fly by. Jesus, the wisdom of God, gave his life to bring peace between God and man. We need the better wisdom of God. Secondly, we need, as the Corinthians did, a better strength. Now again, the people that Paul's writing to are gonna be made up primarily of one of three cultures or some mix of the three, Uh, uh, Romans, Greeks, and Jews. And to the Roman people of the day, the Roman Empire, strength or might, or you might have heard the expression, the glory of Rome, that was everything. It was not that they didn't care about wisdom, but if the Greeks were preeminently concerned with wisdom, the, the Romans were concerned with power and strength. That's how they dominated the entire world to the tune of nearly 5 million square miles that made up the Roman Empire. Famously, one person said, The sun never sets on the Roman Empire, it was everywhere, right? And most of this, if not all of this, was gained through physical strength of conquest going into battle and subjugating, subjugating enemies and in the Roman thought it's like the stronger you are the more you win it makes sense at least to the ways of this world but it does not make sense in the kingdom of God when Paul says in verse 27 the strong he refers to the strong what Paul is referring to is any of the things or all of the things that we lean on, rely on in our own physical capabilities apart from the Spirit of God. You may say, I never really cared much about being physically strong. Confession, I've always cared about it. I just can't figure out how to get it. That's why I go to the gym regularly. I gotta get stronger. You might go, man, that's not really me. I don't really care about that. But I would bet that you care that your bank account is strong, (laughs) that your intellect is strong, That you've got a strong education, that you've got a a strength of capabilities or maybe a strength of appearance. I don't know if you know this or not, but the generations coming up now, this has become the highest value to our culture. More than wealth, power. If a person looks good, they go far. We're in this social media, TV, movies, visual like overload. And you go, man, if that, you know, we can, we can work all the other things out. It's like this checklist, like if I'm good looking and I'm strong and I have money, like if I have all of these things, then I have strength. And Paul is challenging that notion. Some of you would know who this is on the, on the screen behind me. Um, and no hate, Harry Styles, but, um, but I want to share with you something that happened at the Grammys last Sunday that, by the way, I did not watch. Um, but Harry Styles won a Grammy for, I think it was Best Album, and as he's accepting his award in his speech, he's giving thanks. And he says, this kind of thing doesn't happen to people like me. And the internet exploded. Because the internet said with one voice, you're exactly the kind of person this happens to. Like, you are really, really ridiculously good looking and, and uber talented and well connected. And you have all of the things. Like, what are you talking about? This doesn't happen to people like you. And the reason that that happened, that there was a common consensus, is because the world understands that people that look like this and are talented like that, they go farther than those who do not. Paul flips the idea completely upside down, or maybe we should say he turns it right side up when he says in verse 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This theme appears all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. The Egyptian army at the time of the pharaohs was was the Roman Empire, before the Roman Empire. They were the dominant culture and nation of the day. So much so that they were able to enslave the Hebrew people. There were nearly two million slaves living in Egypt under the Egyptian power system. And God called a man named Moses to go toe-to-toe with the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Now the Egyptians had every privilege of strength on their side. More money, a better army, more people, the power of the Pharaoh. And yet God chose what was weak. A leader named Moses and a people called Israelites. And through them, he brought deliverance. It happened again when a young shepherd boy named David went toe-to-toe with a giant named Goliath. And if you were a betting person, and I would not encourage it, if you were a betting person, you would bet your money on Goliath because he's big and strong and well-equipped and well-trained and experienced. And he's got all the advantages. And God chose a weak boy named David with a sling and a stone to drive it through the giant's head and gain victory. We see it again when Esther went to to bat for her people to have them saved from evil Haman. We see it with Jesus before Pontius Pilate. and Jesus is this rural rabbi who's there to be crucified. He's already been beaten. He's already been rejected and betrayed by his own people. and Yet he's remaining quiet and Pilate goes, Jesus, why don't you say something in your own defense? He says, don't you know that I have power over you to deliver you to life or death? And Jesus, leaning on this same concept of true strength and power, says, Pilate, you would have no power over me if it wasn't granted to you from above. See, Jesus understood and lived out the idea that it is through weakness, even through the weakness of the cross, that the power of God is revealed. And maybe the best example in all of the Bible of this same idea is the first century church itself, of which the Corinthians are a part you realize that it was not a popular thing in that time to be a Christian, right? There were emperors with names like Nero who were throwing Christians into Roman Colosseums to be eaten by lions and and beheaded and imprisoned and have their land confiscated. And Paul's going, this is absurd, Corinthian believers. You are obsessed with the idea of power and strength and might, and this very system is what's crushing you. This very system of godless strength and power is what you are living under. He says it's absurd that you would even be caught up in it. Paul, of course, learned this hard lesson himself in Second Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 9. Listen to what he says. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, there was a thorn given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Paul said, I didn't go looking for this thorn in the flesh. I didn't go looking for weakness. In fact, when weakness came, I said, God, take it from me. But he says, but I learned a really valuable lesson. Sometimes when we are at our very weakest, the power of God is at its strongest. I was at this point in preparing the message that I'm preaching right now from Oxum at downtown Winter Garden doing my message prep. And I had to take a break because I had to keep an appointment. And I'll show you where this is going in a second, but, but as I'm thinking on these concepts of God making uh, his strength shown through weakness, I had an appointment to meet with a couple members of this church who were part of our launch team in 2018, Andy and Elaine Young. They were in the rooms with kids, some of you remember them, in their kids t-shirts playing on the floor and, and, and loving God and loving people well and a part of what God was doing here with us. And I got the phone call that Elaine was facing some really tough things from a health perspective. The, the word innumerable is how the tumors were described. And they said, it's probably time, may not be much of it. And so I took a break in the middle of preparing in, in this very moment where I'm thinking about Paul's thorn in the flesh and the weakness that, that nobody wants but that God uses. And I got to sit with a woman who is looking the possibility of death in the face And she is fearless. And she knows that she's bought with the blood of Jesus. She knows where she's going. Can I tell you what her concern was and what she asked me to pray for? She wants to see her neighbors saved. (laughs) The world looks at a person like this and goes, Man, it's confused and her body's breaking down and, 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 and she's losing all the things, all the privileges of youth. And God looks at it and says, My power is being made perfect in her weakness. We don't have to go looking for weakness, but there is a great opportunity when weakness finds us, and it is this. When the relationship we were so confident in falters, when the child that we just can't seem to correct their behavior or the prodigal who won't return home, when we aren't sure how the bills are even going to be paid or we get the diagnosis we feared most, we hit our knees and we say, Jesus, make your power perfect even in this. And what we find when we begin to turn right side up again is that the peace and power of God is greater in those moments, not lesser. So a better wisdom is needed, a better strength is needed, and finally, Paul's going to encourage us that we need a better birthright. This term, birthright, is not common in our vernacular, but we all understand the idea. Throughout history, Being born into the right family came with certain privileges. Uh, In an American context, if you are a Kennedy or a Kardashian, perhaps doors open for you that otherwise should not open. You get to be famous for simply being famous, right? Like there's just things that go with that. And we all understand that. In a Greco-Roman culture, it was being the son of a a Caesar or a a governor of Rome, being the son or daughter of a a Greek philosopher of repute. And and they go, man, that means you're going somewhere. Your, Your last name matters. And certainly to the Jewish people, maybe more than any other culture, birthright was everything. Not only was it important to be born Jewish that alone was enough in their mind to give you favor with God but they also would bicker about which tribes were better Judah or Benjamin or Levi and Paul makes the point he says listen not many of you were of noble birth whether Jews Romans or Greeks not many of you have those natural privileges again not because everyone that was rich or powerful rejected the gospel but the truth is most had And it was those who were weak and and lowly and considered the refuse of the world that were coming to know Jesus, coming to the gospel. Rather than seeing this as a weakness, Paul actually commends it to them as a strength. And there's a very particular reason why he does this. Because if you rely on your natural capabilities or your natural birthright, you think, man, I'm good because I'm an American. I'm good because my daddy was a preacher. I'm good because I'm in the Baptist or Pentecostal or Presbyterian denomination. I'm I'm good because I grew up in church. Paul's going, the danger is that you're going to miss the fact that the favor of God is something that no one possesses by birthright and can only be possessed a different way. There was a man named Nicodemus who once came to Jesus at night and if God's favor could be earned through natural privileges, Nicodemus had them. He was a Jew, check. Not only that, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the the ruling uh, Jewish leadership of the day. He belonged to the right tribe. He had the right knowledge. He had the right uh, network. He had all the things that you could have going for you. And he comes to Jesus really confused because Jesus is turning everything right side up, which, which means everything's turning upside down for him. And he says, Jesus, how does this work? How does this kingdom of God thing work? I thought I had it figured out. And Jesus, knowing Nicodemus' problem, knowing that his birthright was blinding him, said these words, Truly I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying to him, Nicodemus, of all the things that you think you have in your possession, all the things you think earn you favor with God, they're merely blinding you Of your need of him. This birthright issue, Nicodemus, has actually become a disadvantage because it's keeping you from the kingdom. Eventually, Nicodemus would experience the better birthright of becoming a follower of Jesus, surrendering his life to Christ. But he walked a very similar road that Paul himself had walked. Because like Nicodemus, Paul had all those same privileges and advantages. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul takes time to recite what those privileges were that he had by birthright. He says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. The people of Israel, check. Tribe of Benjamin, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he goes further. As to the law, a Pharisee, check. As to zeal, I was persecuting the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says, friends, if you could have gotten by on your birthright, I'd be prime example of it. But I realized what Nicodemus came to realize. I needed to be born again. What I thought I had in my spiritual bank account, what I thought I had as credit or favor from God, I had to experience a spiritual re- rebirth, which is simply a denial of the things that I had put my confidence in and trusting wholeheartedly in the death and resurrection of Jesus for my salvation. When it says in John three sixteen believes whoever believes will be saved it's not meaning somebody who checks all the right boxes it's meaning somebody who has put their confidence in the person of Jesus who's resting no longer on their natural birthright or privileges but entrusting their life to Jesus we must be born again that naturally leads to a question that Nicodemus beat you to which is how in the world does that happen Nicodemus, thinking of natural things, thinking not with kingdom values, goes, Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Does he then enter again into his mother's womb? (laughs) It's like he's trying to figure out the science of this thing. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you understand being born in the physical. I'm simply telling you, you have to be born spiritually as well. How in the world does that happen? It happens when I entrust my life to Jesus by grace, through faith. When the, when the it is finished of Jesus on the cross becomes enough for me and it's what I rest on, I then am born again or I experience spiritual rebirth. The Corinthians had drifted from this concept to the point where they were going back into natural human values. Paul says, time out, Corinthians. This never rested on the values of this world. This has always rested on the kingdom of God. Jesus is the answer to a better wisdom, to a better strength, to a better birthright than what we have on our own. This morning, we wanted to drive the point home, the power of the gospel. Paul said actually that while he was with the Corinthians, the only thing he resolved to know was Jesus Christ and him crucified. It wasn't that other things didn't matter. It wasn't that other issues didn't need addressing. He would get there. But he said, Corinthians, come back to this reality. All that you have, you have by grace. All that you have, you have because of the death of Jesus. When you walked in this morning, you should have received the elements of communion or of the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, we're gonna take this together as an observance, as a remembrance of the death of Jesus. And as you walked in, if you didn't uh, receive those elements and you would like to, I wanna encourage you to just kinda slip your hand up. We have some deacons and some folks that can bring the elements around to you. have got some here and some in different spots Um, And while they're passing those elements out, let me just say a word uh, as an aside. If you have not yet put your trust or confidence in Jesus, if this is something you're still weighing or trying to evaluate or, or, or still considering, you just let this moment pass and you observe that moment. You don't need to participate in it. The communion or the Lord's Supper is for followers of Jesus who recognize that it is in the body and blood of Jesus that our salvation has come. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed into the hands of the Roman guard, he took bread at dinner, distributed it among the disciples, said to them, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. And so we eat in remembrance of the body of Jesus. Scripture tells us that in the same way he took the wine and passed it to the disciples. and said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Take whenever you drink of it and do it in remembrance of me. So we drink remembering the blood of Jesus. As we reflect on the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us, the prophet Isaiah 600 years before the coming of Christ said by his wounds we are healed. By the blood of Jesus we are healed. As my team met this week, we recognized that yes, there's a need for spiritual healing, our our greatest prayer, hope and desire is that every person in this room and every person watching online would come to know Jesus as their Savior. That is foremost in our prayers and in our desire. But we also recognize that Jesus is a healer in the physical as well. We've seen it. We have seen people with cancer freed. We we have seen miraculous things happen in the physical realm. And that is God's realm, not ours, but we believe that God is able to heal And so in this season, when a lot of us are walking through different physical or health issues, I want to let you know what we're doing next Sunday. Next Sunday during both services, 9.30 and 11 o'clock, we're going to carve out some space in the middle of our worship service, and it's just going to be a time of prayer. And it may be that you or, or someone you know or love is going through a season of need where it's physical or spiritual or even mental, and you want to come for yourself or come on their behalf to receive prayer, I just want to let you know that that's coming. Didn't want to sneak up on you, surprise you with it. I want you to be prepared for it. So when we ask, is there anybody in the room that needs prayer? You would not be shy if that's you. And you would come and you would stand and we would seek the Lord together for prayer. By his wounds, we are healed. God in heaven, I thank you for the blood of Jesus. I thank you that whatever other things we might celebrate, whatever other experiences we might have, that we give you glory for and rightly so. God, above all, we rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. We celebrate that your son, Jesus, took our place on the cross, that we didn't have to die the death we deserved. It's already been done for us. And we receive, again, the mercy, the hope, the joy that only comes in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.